Well, I'm TC, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Roots, and I want to welcome you. We are in a series currently on the book of Romans, which is a really important book in the New Testament. It's the Apostle Paul's longest letter that we have, and so it's our biggest window into the theology of the early Jesus movement. And out of the 27 books in the New Testament as a whole, 13 of them are Paul's letters. So a lot of what we now simply call Christian theology is directly from Paul's spirit-inspired mind. But Romans is important for another reason as well. It's been an important part of the Protestant Reformation and therefore an important part of modern Western history and culture. Uh, as many of you already know, on October 31st, 1517, just over 500 years ago, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther, nailed 95 points of debate, or theses, if you will, to a door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. These points were, uh, many of them were critiques that he had of practices in the medieval Catholic Church. He had critiques of the Pope, he had critiques of indulgences, and he had a bunch of other critiques. But this event is considered to be sort of the spark that lit the wildfire that became global Protestantism. And here we are 500 years later and there are close to a billion Protestants out of the 2.4 billion Christians worldwide. Which just simply means that they aren't Catholic or they aren't Orthodox. Here in the United States and in many other countries around the world, millions of Christians each year uh, commemorate something called Reformation Day on October 31st. And it's in commemoration of of Martin Luther and the others who contributed to this thing called Protestantism. Now, while there are many good reasons to be grateful for the movement that Luther and others sparked, it's also important to remember that divisions and schisms in the body of Christ are always first and foremost something to lament, not something to celebrate. There are important matters on which Christians disagree and I, for one, am grateful to be a Protestant. I have good reasons for why I'm a Protestant. However, Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17 is that we would be one, as he and the Father are one. And so I agree with Stanley Hauerwas, who said this about Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday does not name a happy event for the church Catholic. On the contrary, it names failure. If we are no longer have broken hearts at the church's division, then we cannot help but unfaithfully celebrate Reformation Sunday. So this is one of the reasons why we are intentional about approaching the Book of Romans a little bit differently than other Protestant traditions might approach it. We want to understand what Paul was saying to his original audience first, and then we want to understand how to apply Paul's teaching in our lives today. But to do that, we're going to have to fight the urge to read Romans the way we've been taught to as Protestants. Instead of spending uh, a lot of time at the beginning of the book, we have started in the back of the book, at the end of Romans, with uh, chapters uh, 12 through 16. And a lot of Protestants begin at the beginning of Romans and work their way through the first eight chapters as if they were a nice, neat package of systematic theology. So we have been, in a sense, reading Romans backwards. 
And that, that just simply means that we are immersing ourselves in the historical and cultural context that primarily shows up in, ver in chapters 12 through 16. That's where Paul talks about some of the socio-political and cultural and ethnic conflict that was taking place in the church, in the churches uh, of Rome. And this has been a big part of why we've been reading Romans backwards. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight has a new book by that title, and his big idea is that this conflict between the so-called weak faction and the so-called strong faction is the context for every passage in Romans. And so when you read these earlier chapters in light of that conflict, you start to see all kinds of new insights that you didn't see before. So that's why we've been reading Romans backwards. For example, last Sunday, Emily Morrison preached an excellent sermon on chapters 9 through 11, which is a famously complex and confusing portion of Romans. Theologians have been debating about the meaning of Romans chapters 9 through 11 for centuries. Do they teach individual predestination and election? Do they teach that human beings don't have free will? Do they teach that all Israelites will be saved? Do they teach that the church is the new Israel? Well, by keeping close to that context, by staying immersed in that conflict between the so-called weak and the so-called strong, Emily was able to make more sense of those chapters. She did such a good job. If you haven't heard it, you should really uh, check it out. You can listen to it on the website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, that's why I should explain why uh, we're going to jump to the front of the book this week. <laughs> because I agree with Scott McKnight in his uh, assessment that there are four major sections of Romans. There's the 12 through 16 section that I just talked about. There's the 9 through 11 section. Then there's the 5 through 8 section and the 1 through 4 section. And the reason why we're skipping over, sort of leapfrogging over 5 through 8, is because that's really the heart of Romans. That's really where Romans sort of culminates. And Paul's, all of Paul's sort of advice and his solutions for this conflict in Rome all sort of hinges on chapters 5 through 8. So we're going to leapfrog over that for now, and we're going to save the best for last. This week we're going to jump all the way to the beginning of Romans, chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at the foundations of our faith, the gospel. Because sometimes the problem that we have is that we've taken for granted or neglected the foundation. Largely because we're so excited to build on top of it. But you know that if you neglect a foundation and build a whole lot on top of it, there's a good chance or a danger that what you have built could collapse. And there's another danger that we have in modern Western Protestantism, and that's that Sometimes we've not only neglected the foundation of the gospel, we've completely replaced it. So when we started this series on Romans, a lot of us kind of have some baggage, some prior experiences, some thoughts, some, uh, some preconceived notions about what Romans is all about. Maybe one of them for you, like me, was the Romans Road. How many of you have heard of the Romans Road? For those of you who aren't familiar, the Romans Road is uh, a series of Bible memory verses that a lot of Protestant children are taught in Sunday school. And uh, some have called it the Romans Road to Salvation. Some have called it the Romans Road to Heaven. And uh, three of the main verses in the Romans Road are 323, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
6.23, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's that simple, right? We're sinners. Jesus died for our sins. So pray this prayer and you're saved. Boom. For many generations, Protestant children have been taught that this set of verses teaches the gospel. That's the gospel. And if you want to know the gospel and you want to share the gospel, you should memorize these verses. But what if I told you that the gospel Paul preached was not the Romans' road? Would that blow your mind? What if I told you that it actually matters that we get the gospel right? Because it's the foundation of our faith. Today we're going to take a closer look at the opening verses of Paul's letter to the house churches at Rome. And we're going, to, we're going to see that the gospel that Paul preaches is about Jesus, not us. That it's good news, not good advice. And that it's not just about saving our souls, it's about changing everything. But before we dive into those verses, would you join me in a prayer for the Spirit's illumination? Holy Spirit, we always need you. We always need you to shine your light upon the text of Scripture. Would you open our hearts and our minds and illuminate the Scriptures to our understanding this morning? Would you help us to see what it is you want us to see? Hear what it is you want us to hear? And would you use that word to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Alright, if you have a translation of the Bible, you are welcome to turn in it. Uh, I don't hear any pages turning. <laughs> so you can follow along on the screens behind me. Um, some of you are, are scrolling. I hear the scrolling. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I'm going to read from one, verse 1 to verse 7. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, the, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Outside of the sermons that Luke recounts of Paul's preaching in the book of Acts, there are three primary places where Paul defines the gospel that he preaches. And our text this morning is one of those three. The other two are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in 2 Timothy 2. Now if we take a look at these three passages, we will be, be able to easily discern commonalities and patterns of what Paul preaches as the gospel. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. 
Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. 2 Timothy 2. This is a short one. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel. When we let Paul define the gospel that he's preaching among the Gentiles, the picture that quickly emerges is not one of the Romans' road. I think that's pretty obvious by now. But the picture that emerges most clearly about the gospel is that it's about Jesus' enthronement as king. For we know that Christ was the Greek word for Messiah, Israel's king. And the implication of Paul's proclamation of Jesus was that he was not only Israel's king, but that he was the Lord of all ethnic groups, all nations. He was the rightful ruler of the world, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, this was so obvious that it almost got Paul killed lots of times. For example, one time Paul was preaching in Thessalonica and he was uh, visiting his friend Jason. Here's what it says in Acts 17. While the mob was searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there's another king named Jesus. So contrary to what millions of Protestant children have been taught in Sunday school, the gospel that Paul preached wasn't about you and me. It wasn't about how to get saved or go to heaven. It was about Jesus. That seems really obvious. That was why Paul says in no uncertain terms in Romans 1 that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Concerning what? Concerning God's son. But I know precisely why this makes us uncomfortable. Because we're Westerners. And we have been formed by Western individualism, whether we realize it or not. Each one of us are little individualists. Everything we do is about us in this culture. And we really, 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 really want the gospel to be about us. Because we shop where we want to shop. And we consume the media that we want to consume. And when we watch TV, every commercial is about me. And when we go on the internet, we only pay attention to what concerns me. So when I read the Bible, guess what? I want to know, what's it got to do with me? We're so me-centered in our culture that if I stood here and preached Paul's gospel, and that, of that alone, people would go home and say, that wasn't a very practical sermon. That wasn't very relevant. I wish it was more about me. <laughs> 
We want so badly to get past the part about Jesus and get to the part about me. What has Jesus done for me lately? That's our question. But the gospel is not self-help. The gospel is not three steps to your best life now. I'm sorry to disappoint you. The gospel is not even three steps to how to go to heaven. The gospel is about Jesus. And maybe the problem isn't with the gospel that Paul preached. Maybe the problem is with us. Maybe we're bored with Jesus. Get to the part about me. I think the real danger for Western Christians is that familiarity breeds contempt. We've grown so accustomed to the story of Jesus that he does not enthrall us anymore. Instead, we've grown so enamored by the many self-help messages and self-actualization and self, 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 self. Jesus doesn't even capture our imaginations anymore. During the Renaissance, they used to paint beautiful pictures of Jesus. We just take selfies, right? Imagine if we thought about how amazing, how awe-inspiring, how unique, how powerful, how beautiful Jesus is, half as much as we think about our Enneagram numbers. Wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine if we spent half as much time adoring Jesus as we do adoring ourselves. If you can't say amen, you can just say ouch. (laughs) Paul's gospel wasn't about you or me. It was about Jesus. And if that's a problem for you and me, that's our problem, not Paul's. Matthew Bates is a New Testament scholar, and he's written two books on the gospel, one called Salvation by Allegiance Alone and one called Gospel Allegiance. And he's done an extensive study of what Paul preached as the gospel. And here's his summary. You ready? Ten points. Jesus preexisted as the divine son. He was sent by God the Father, took on human flesh to fulfill the promises God made to David and Israel, died on a cross for our sins, was buried, resurrected, conquering death by the power of the Holy Spirit, appeared to many witnesses, is enthroned as King and Lord, sent the Holy Spirit, will return to judge and reign. This is a summary of what we've seen in those three passages from Paul. And it's a summary of what we've seen in our text this morning. In fact, this is how Paul summarizes the gospel in Romans chapter 1. He says, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Here it is, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the gospel. That is the content of the gospel. That is not our response to the gospel. It's really important that we keep those separate. In the New Testament, we have four books called the gospel. The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. And in all of the gospels, Jesus preaches the gospel. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe the good news. The first part of that is the content of the gospel, and the second part of that is our response to the gospel. It's important that we see the difference between good news and good advice. 
The gospel is good news. The gospel is not good advice. Now, I know this is a smart church, so I don't have to tell you that when Paul was writing the, the book of Romans, the word gospel he used for good news wasn't a religious term at the time. It was a political term. It, it, it represented a royal proclamation, like the birth of a new king or a king's victory in battle. And that's why Paul was calling the events of Jesus' life good news and not good advice. Here's what it's like. This is, this is what the gospel is like in the first century. You all know that Julius Caesar was assassinated, right? Atu Brute. That was in 44 BC. Now, after Julius Caesar was assassinated, there was a power vacuum at the top of the Roman Empire. And two men wanted to fill that power vacuum. One of them was Octavian, Julius Caesar's adopted son. And the other was Mark Antony, who was a beloved military general. After he and Octavian partnered in the hunting down and the, and the killing of all of Julius Caesar's assassins, they decided to split up the empire and rule side by side. But that didn't last long. Pretty soon, that devolved into a civil war. And on September 2nd of 31 BC, their two navies met in a battle called Actium. Even though Mark Antony had the larger navy, Octavian was victorious. He had superior technology and strategy. So Antony famously fled to Egypt, and you know that he committed suicide with his consort, Cleopatra. Well, here's what N.T. Wright says about this and the gospel in his book, Simply Good News. He says, suppose you had been a friend of the Caesar family. If Octavian won, it would be good news for you. But if Antony won, it would be bad news for you. You might have to leave town in a hurry. Then at last, Rome hears what has happened. Good news! Octavian Caesar has won a great victory. He is now master of the whole Roman world. This is good news about something that has just happened. The backstory of the Civil War has come to a close. Peace is at hand. The word good news be became a regular slogan for announcing that the world that Octavian, soon to be acclaimed Augustus, by which he's more usually known, had brought peace and justice and prosperity to the world. That was the gospel according to Octavian. The royal proclamation, the good news that Octavian Caesar had triumphed in battle, was news, not advice. It was a declaration of something that had happened, the results of which now the world is a different place. The content of the gospel is altogether different from our response to the gospel. So, when we think about the gospel that Paul was preaching, we have to remember that Paul is preaching the good news that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, is the Lord of all nations, all ethnic groups. And now we have to make a choice. Will we bow our knee and give our allegiance to the true king or not? This isn't a choice like, uh, what store will I shop at? This isn't a choice like, which one of these religions will give me the best life? The gospel is a statement about a new reality. To reject this gospel is to live in a fantasy world. But we in the West have turned the gospel into another option for us to consider. 
We're so used to consuming products to improve our lives that we frame the gospel that way too. We say, here are three steps to going to heaven when you die. Oh, I like the sound of that. Uh, what are the words that I need to pray to get those benefits? Oh, just pray this prayer. Oh, great. Now I'm good. I got my ticket to heaven. But that's not at all the response that Jesus was looking for from the gospel. Here's another example. Josephus was a contemporary of Paul. And he initially fought against the Romans in the Jewish wars. At one point in his autobiography, he recounts this encounter that he had with a leader of another Jewish rebel faction who tried to kill Josephus. He, he uh, cornered this guy and he outwitted this guy. And this is what it says in the Greek. It says, show repentance. This is what he said to the guy. Show repentance and prove your loyalty to me. And the Greek in that passage is the same words that is in Jesus' proclamation of the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus wasn't telling people to feel sorry about their sins and pray a sinner's prayer so they can go to heaven when they die. He was saying, you're going the wrong way. Repent, turn around, and place your allegiance in me. Give me your allegiance. Therefore, the gospel is a confrontation of our allegiance. The gospel tells you and me every day that we must turn away from all other lords, all other kings, and we must bow our knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It tells us every day that we must turn around and turn back to Jesus. If we confuse the good news for good advice, we confuse the content of the gospel with our response to the gospel. But there's another danger. The other danger is confusing the content of the gospel with the benefits of the gospel. We love benefits, don't we? We love clip coupons. We love to get sales. I have a coworker, and every time we go someplace at work, She's got a huge book of coupons, and she's got all these like uh, rewards apps on her phone. She's like, oh, I got, I got points there. Let me use these points. We love benefits. For millions of Western Christians, the gospel is a message about the benefits. What's this got to do with me, and what does it give me? Oh, forgiveness? I love that. Forgiveness is a good benefit. Life in the age to come, that's a good benefit. I want that. Give me that. Forgiveness and life in the age to come are benefits to the gospel. I agree. But they are not the gospel itself. Forgiveness of sins is definitely a promised benefit to you and I when we respond appropriately to the gospel. And life in the age to come is definitely a promised benefit to those who are united with Christ and follow him in discipleship. But these aren't surprise the benefits that Paul emphasizes. Did you notice that? When we read Romans backwards and we keep in mind that context of the conflict in the church of Rome, that socio-political, that cultural, that ethnic conflict between the so-called weak and the so-called strong, then we are able to better understand why Paul is emphasizing different benefits than what we are used to hearing. Here's what Paul says in the latter half of our, our passage this morning. He says, through whom, the gospel, through whom 
We have received grace and apostleship, what? To bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. The benefit of the gospel that Paul emphasizes from the very start of Romans is the ingathering of the Gentiles into this new community that God is forming of Jews and Gentiles together in one new humanity called the church. Paul's gospel benefit that he emphasizes is the antidote to the division, the socio-political, cultural, and ethnic division in the church of Rome. And we're so accustomed to reading Romans through the lens of our Western individualism that we, all we hear is forgiveness and going to heaven. But Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter was to teach the church at Rome how to live together as one new humanity. It was not how to convince people that they could be forgiven and go to heaven when they die. Do you know what the problem that we face today is not? How to convince people they could be forgiven and go to heaven when they die. That is not the problem that I am confronted with every single day. Do you know what the problem is I'm confronted with every single day? How do I get along with people I do not agree with? Every single day. I'm a pastor. And I get asked about this literally like every day. But my family, but my coworkers, but my church members, right? How do we walk alongside others in community who we disagree with? Who we have different cultures with? Who we see things from different perspectives from? How do we do that? If the church abandons the gospel that Paul preaches, it forfeits our calling to be agents of healing those divides. Do you see that? We are the ones that are called to be the community that heals those divides. One of the men who has inspired me most in my, in my life is a Native American theologian named Richard Twist who went to be with uh, the creator several years ago. But he wrote a book that's fantastic called One Church, Many Tribes. And in this book, he recounts his, his journey of coming into the church and being fully Native American at first and then being told, you've got to stop that. You need to strip all that Native American stuff away and just be like us, which meant be white. And how he had to go on a many, many decade journey into how to discover how to be authentically who God made him to be as a Native American person in the church. And he went on to be a pastor and a theologian. And here's what he says at the end of his book. These words haunt me. He says, As the family of God, we are being called to bring healing to these divisions among cultures and people groups and to demonstrate to the world a power and grace to walk with one another in true honor and respect, declaring that there is a better way the Jesus way. When we reduce the gospel to a plan of salvation for individuals, a method of getting rid of our personal guilt, the church walks away from the true gospel and leaves a hurting, divided, polarized world abandoned. 
The world needs its rightful king to be rescued. It needs the gospel to be declared about Jesus Christ, our Lord, all of our Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not good advice on how to get saved. It's not a system that gets rid of our guilt. The gospel is the announcement that the powers of evil have been principally defeated in and through Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus has principally defeated all of those forces that divide us, that keep us apart from one another, that create injustice. The true king who brings peace and justice is not Octavius. It's not president, whoever. The true king who brings peace and justice is Jesus. This has implications not just for individuals, it has implications for whole communities. It has implications for whole nations. It has implications for the whole world. So how do we do this? How do we do this as a church? I'm going to propose something uh, that is not in my notes. <laughs> Off the cuff here. In a month, we're going to transition as a church into the season of Advent. And I want to suggest that as we enter into Advent, that we enter into Advent with this mindset. That we are embarking on a journey through the life of Jesus. Being formed by the life and the story of Jesus. And we're doing it together as a community. And as we journey together through the life of Jesus and the story of Jesus, we are being formed more and more into the image of Jesus. And we are being formed as a community together. I'm going to suggest that as we embark upon this year's church calendar, that we see it as a, a unifying way, a way that Jesus brings us together it, it, uh, across all of the divisions, the false barriers that the world tries to erect between us. Amen? The risen Lord is not just our personal Lord, but is the one who is making all things new. All of creation groans in anticipation for the revelation of the sons of God, for the revelation of the resurrection from the dead. Paul's gospel is that Jesus Christ is not merely our Lord, but is the Lord of all creation. That means that Jesus has joined all of us together in one new humanity. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we... We have heard your gospel. We've heard it much of our life. We've heard it in many places, in many ways. And I think that we are tempted or we are in danger of growing bored with it. Help us to hear your gospel with new ears, Lord. With ears that are excited. With ears that are moved. With ears that are transformed. Help us to proclaim your gospel boldly as a gospel that unites people, as a gospel that tears down walls, as a gospel that creates one new human community together. Help us to hear the gospel in such a way that we are drawn not only to you but to one another. And help us to hear your gospel as a message for the whole world. I pray that you would make Roots Covenant Church a gospel-infused community. That we are constantly exalting you, constantly pointing to you, 
constantly being awe-inspired by you and pledging our entire allegiance to you in spite of all the idols in our world, all the temptations. Help us to turn away from every other Lord and bow our knee to you. For you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all God's people said, Amen.